Uh, really good to be with you guys today. I've been looking forward to uh, coming up here and, and talking. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about change and, and about how we often get stuck when we're trying to grow. I don't know about you, but I've always been a little bit of a self-improvement junkie. Like I, I want to get better. I want to I grow and become something. Um, I'm actually not alone on this. There's some research. Uh, John LaRosa does some market research. L- look at this quote from him. He says, there is no shortage of demand for products and programs that cater to Americans' desire to make more money, lose weight, improve their relationships and business skills, cope with stress, or obtain a quick dose of motivation. And I totally get what he's talking about because I think I've tried all of those things at some point in my life. I've gone on a fitness kick. I did, uh, I did P90X three times, not like three days out of 90, but I did it 90 days three times, you know, so I got I really, oh, I'm going to work out six days a week and I'm going to take that my one rest day and I'm just going to really do that. And then I joined like group fitness classes and I've done that kind of thing in and out of, I'm going to train for this race and I'm going to run and I'm going to do the Tough Mudder. And I, I did all of those things as part of my, like, I want to get better and I want to, I want to grow. Have you guys done those kind of fitness things? Anybody done CrossFit? Uh, none of you. I, I know. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I didn't even have to ask because if you had done CrossFit, you would have told me already. I've been in here 20 minutes. Um, but, but so we do these things and we go, oh man, I want to get in better shape. Or you say like eating, right? We do these eating challenges. You know, I'm, I'm not, no carb, no this. I'm going to do the Atkins. I'm going to do all these different things over the years. I did, I, I did and have done Whole30. Has anyone done that? So you, it's, it's no grains, no sugar, no alcohol, no dairy, and no fun for 30 days is, <laughs> is what you're supposed to do. And, and, so, and, and you lose weight and you get in better shape and all this kind of stuff. So I've done, I've done that because I want to improve. I have done that like uh, improvement thing with my, with my faith. I've said, okay, you know what, this year I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through the New Testament 90 days, or I'm going to read through the whole Bible, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this many books per month that are going to help me grow in my faith. And maybe you've done that too. You've set out these goals of like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do these things and they're going to help me grow and be a more spiritual person. You've probably done something like that before. I've, I've gotten those journals, you know, those like moleskine journals or whatever, you know, they're like leather bound and the, and the, and the edges of the paper are like tattered looking because I don't know, they can't cut them straight or whatever. And they get like tattered and there's like a felt uh, piece inside of it. And it's like, man, I'm telling you what, you get a journal like that and you write your thoughts to God, it goes directly to God, like to the bat phone. Like it's just, you write that down, it's right to God. Like it, there's nothing more holy than one of those like journals, right? So I've done that thing for a while. I've done other self-improvement things. I like, let me learn French 10 minutes a day, like different stuff, right? That I've done over the years. And, and I'm sure you've done some of that stuff too. But here's the problem. This is what I've run into is eventually you hit a wall. And you go, okay, I was growing, I was changing, this was good, things were working. But I just hit this wall and now I feel stuck. I thought I was going to get like, you know, six-pack abs in 25 minutes a day. And instead I've got like this two-liter still, you know. And, and it's, not, it's not working. And, 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 and you know what I'm talking about? Have you, have you, have you felt that sense of stuck um, where, where you... you, you you set out these goals. Usually around the beginning of the year, you make these, ah, this year I'm going to do these resolutions, right? And then eventually you hit the wall and you feel stuck. And, and I want to talk today a little bit about how to get unstuck um, because I, I think there's a key piece to it. I think there's an important question, what I'm going to call the most important question that we can ask ourselves and that God asks of us and it helps us to get unstuck. And to do it, I want us to look back at, a, at, a, at an encounter between Jesus and this one man. And this was a guy who was very, very stuck. And I think when you see it, you'll see how Jesus asked this guy this very important question. And as we look at it, I think it's going to show us a few things about ourselves and some ways that we can get unstuck. So hopefully it'll be helpful to you. Uh, we're going to look at John chapter 5. I don't know if you guys have Bibles in front of you. Um, 
We will definitely put it on the screen. Always good to look at it on paper because paper never needs to be rebooted if it, if it breaks. So uh, paper's good. But I, I, I got it here as well. Um, John chapter 5. And I want you to hear uh, this encounter that Jesus has with this man. And we'll see how he gets unstuck. Uh, chapter 5, starting with verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. All right, I got to stop there already. Um, we're just getting into it. Uh, there are a lot of John records Jesus in Galilee, in northern Israel, and then in Jerusalem, more in southern Israel, and his interactions with people that he has in those two places. Jews would go to Jerusalem in this time. They would go for, for three major festivals a year, and it would be big celebrations, and it, hundreds of thousands of people would descend upon Jerusalem. One of them was uh, Passover. was a big deal. One of them was Pentecost, which is what they think this one is in this story in John 5. And then another one's called the Feast of the Booths, or Tabernacles, which was basically this big tent camping thing that they did where they'd come to Jerusalem and everyone would camp out and it'd be kind of probably smelly and pretty gnarly. It's basically like Bonnaroo or Burning Man, but a Jewish version of that in, in the desert outside of Jerusalem. And they would do this, um, and, and they would do this three times a year. Well, so all the Jews would come. So when that happens, Jerusalem's extremely crowded. It's real busy, a lot of people intersecting there in the city. And this is one of those situations. Jesus being an observant Jew in his day, he's going, uh, probably uh, scholars estimate that this is at Pentecost. So he's going to Jerusalem Pentecost, and this is what happens. Verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. All right, so um, Jesus goes to the, this, uh, this, this pool, this healing pool, Bethesda, um, in Jerusalem. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can actually see this. It's one of the best archaeological sites, I think, in Jerusalem. Uh, in Jerusalem today, you have, um, you have a, a, the Temple Mount, and, and there would have been the temple on it. Now there's a Muslim shrine and a mosque on top of the Temple Mount, which is this big flat rock, and there's walls around it. You probably have heard of those walls, the Wailing Wall, where, pe- where Jews go today to pray at that wall. So right, and there's gates around that, t- uh, around that temple mount, that area. Right outside one of those gates, uh, where it says by the sheep gate, uh, there's this little spring or pool of water, um, and it's called, uh, it, there's these roofed colonnades over it. The, the archaeology, they've, they've dug it up. So where Jesus walked in Jerusalem is like 80 feet below where you can walk there today. So you have to like really dig down if you want to see something from that long ago. But when you dig down, they found there's this natural spring that bubbles up. There's a, there's a bit of water there. And the Roman, it's sort of this Roman architecture where they built these, these little archways over, over, the, over this water. And you can still see some of those archways still exist and they have them there today. And, and this was a pretty famous spot. And, and the reason it was a big deal in their day is that people would hang out there. It said the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. People would hang out next to that pool. The idea was this. The, the, because it was fed by a spring, occasionally it would bubble up. And people would sit and wait by that water because they believed that when the water bubbled up, it meant that an angel had stirred it. And if you could be the first person to get in the water after the angel had stirred the water, you would get a miraculous healing. If so, so they didn't have hospitals, even though Bethesda is not a hospital in Maryland. I don't know. That's interesting where that name came from. Uh, they believed this is a place of healing. And I don't, know, I don't know how much there was to it. I don't know if someone actually was healed there, you know. And so people, the, the word got out. And then what would happen is there's a bunch of people laying by this little pool of water. And they're waiting for their turn to, to get, into, get into the water to receive a healing. And so Jesus walks into that scene, this crowd of people laying around. 
And he doesn't talk to everybody in the crowd. He walks up to just one guy. I don't know why, but he goes up to this one guy. Look at verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay, imagine what that's like. 38 years and he can't move, right? Like imagine he, he, can't, uh, he can't walk. Uh, imagine how that, that goes even now, where you, you, how much you'd have to rely on other people. But imagine that in the ancient world too. For that guy to even be by that water, he needs friends who will like get up in the morning and like go to his house and pick him up and carry him and set him down next to that pool so that he could receive a healing. And then at the end of the day, someone's got to pick him up and carry him back to his house so he can rest there. Like that's this guy's life for 38 years. Now, we don't know if he sat by that pool for 38 years, but if you, even if you go, okay, sat by it for a few years, uh, that's a lot. That's a lot of sitting by this little pool waiting for a miracle to happen. And what level of despair does this guy feel in his life? He's like, man, this isn't, this isn't going to get better. Everyone else can run and jump and play. I don't get to do any of those things. I'm just stuck is probably how, is probably how he felt. And Jesus walks up to this guy, and he asks the best question, the most important question for getting unstuck. I want you to see it. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, when I first read this, I thought, that's a pretty insensitive question to ask someone, isn't it? I mean, it says Jesus knows that he had been lying there a long time, and he goes up to him and he's like, hey, do you want to get better? And the guy's like, well, duh. Like, you, when, you, when you think like, of course I do. Like, why would you even ask me? I mean, you don't go to someone in a wheelchair and say, hey, wouldn't you like to walk again? Like, yeah, for sure, I'd like to get better. It seems like a, a spectacularly insensitive question. But I think the reason Jesus asks it is he knows that there's something going on underneath the surface for this guy. He knows this guy's just laying there and he's, and he's crippled and, it, and it's a challenge. But, it, but he goes and he, and he probes into that a little more and he says, do you want to get healed? But here's really the question underneath that question. Here's what he's asking. He's saying, what do you want? What do you want? And I think if you're stuck, that's the most important question you can ask. And it's actually a brilliant question in this situation. He doesn't walk up to the guy and say, what have you been taught? How, like, uh, biblical are you? Uh, How Jewish are you? What do you know? What do you believe in? Where's your faith? He doesn't say any of that stuff. He walks up to him and asks him a question, not of the brain, but of the heart and the will. He says, what do you actually want? What What do you desire? So it's an important question. It's actually the first question ever asked in the book of John. In the book of, not this one, but if you back up a couple chapters, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee and some of his disciples who are about to become his disciples, they walk up to him and he turns around to them and he basically says, what are you seeking or what do you want? It's an important question. And Jesus asks questions all the time. It's one of the things that can be frustrating to us when we read about him. I, I, I want to say he, he, Jesus is asked a question something like 180 times in the Gospels, and 130 times plus he answers those questions with a question. You ever had a teacher who did that? Yeah? That's, it, we think it's annoying. Like, I asked you a question, just give me the answer. Because what we want is answers. But what they valued in the ancient world were the right questions. 
You've heard of the Socratic method, Socrates. This isn't just a Jewish thing in the Greek culture as well. They valued asking good questions. An author named Doug Estes has said Jesus asks five types of questions. He asks open questions. He asks reflective questions. He asks um, decisive questions, responsive questions, and coercive questions. And I didn't even know there were that many kinds of questions. In fact, there's a writer, an ancient writer named Chrysippus in the Greek world who wrote in the, about the year 280 BC. And Chrysippus wrote about a, a book about questions, but he didn't write one book. He wrote 14 books about how to ask questions. Isn't that crazy? Like, I, I, if I was to write a book about how to ask questions, it would be like a page long, and it would be like who, what, when, where, why, how. That's all I've got. Like, I have no... But they were so used to this idea that the way you grow, the way you change, the way you are transformed is when you engage your heart. And the way you engage your heart is to engage the questions, not just find all the answers. It's a powerful thing. And so Jesus comes and asks this guy a question to, to, to work on the guy's will, his motivation. What does he actually really want? And you know this to be true. You know that getting all the answers doesn't do it for you. You've gone to conferences in your field. I've gone to conferences, and you hear someone speak, and you're like, oh, that's really good. I should write that down. And you write it down in a little notebook. If it's really good, you'll tweet it out, and then you'll be like, oh, that was so good. Man, I just learned this thing, and you wrote it, and you put it in a notebook, and you went back to your desk, and you put that notebook away, and you never looked at it again, and nothing was actually changed in your life because someone just gave you a couple answers. That's not the way it really works for us. That's not the way we, we, we move. We're not transformed because we're not actually asking and engaging the right kind of questions. You have to address the will. Just knowing the answers is not enough. Knowledge is never enough. And let me, let me prove that to you. Um, here's the reality. If, if information was all we needed for transformation, then all of us right now would be millionaires with six-pack abs because we all know how to do it. It's not, you know what those things are. Like you, can go, you can Google that real quick and just figure out. It's not a question of, do I have the right information? It's a question of motivation. It's a question of will. It's a question of desire. What do I actually want in this world? And so Jesus asked the guy that question. Do you want to be healed? But basically it's the question, what do you want? Listen to his answer. Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Now, isn't that an interesting answer to the question? Do you want to get well? I would think the answer is, heck yes, I do. Like, it's not, it's not a hard question. Do you want to be healed? Oh, totally. Yes, absolutely. What do you got? You got anything for me? Can you heal me? He doesn't say that. He says, and this is the way I hear it. Now, look, I'm going to give the guy... No, I'm not going to give a guy a break, but I, I, I wasn't there, so I don't it's a tone of voice, right? I, we're just reading the text. But as I hear this response, it sounds to me like, oh, you know, um, I, I would get healed, but um, I can't get in the water. And every time I try to get in, someone else goes before me, and I can never get in there, and it's just really frustrating. And you can see my situation here, like, I, it's hard for me to get in there, and I've been trying right? I know what this sounds like because I have, I have kindergartners in my, I've had in my home, you know, like I know what kids, it sounds like kids to me. It sounds like, but I can and he and why didn't you get your cereal? Well, he took the bowl and I couldn't. Like I know what that stuff sounds like. And, and so to me, and maybe I'm not being fair to him, but I think to me this sounds a little bit, and maybe this is why Jesus goes after it, but this sounds like it's kind of weird. There's something not right here. What do you mean you can't get in the water? And, and look, if you've been sitting by that pool for a day and you couldn't get in when the water was stirred up, I get it. 
If you were there for a week and you couldn't get in there, people kept getting in before you, I get it. But if you've been sitting there for years and you never got into that water, I think something else is going on. I'm not sure you really want to get in that water. I don't think he wants to get in that pool. There's something weird going on here. And this is next level, and maybe we don't have time to get into all this, but here's what I'm wondering. Maybe he doesn't want to get in the water, really? Like, oh, who wouldn't want to be healed? No, maybe he doesn't want to get in the water because it's his last hope. And if he gets in there and finds out that that doesn't work too, what has he got left? It's better to sit on the edge and complain that it's not working out and not know than to get in there and find out that that actually doesn't work. And maybe that's where this guy's at. And maybe that's, honestly, maybe that's where a lot of us are when we're stuck. Maybe that's where we are when we come to church. You got, maybe you're sitting here today and you're sitting there thinking, I don't know if this God thing is true. I'm going to give it a shot, maybe. Or I've thought about getting baptized, but I don't know, if I, if I get in that water, what if I come out and I'm still the same? And, and, and there may be something better about just not knowing and staying on the sidelines than actually diving in and, and trying it out and seeing if it really works. And so maybe that's where this guy was. But let me, let me peel back another layer on him. If, if, if we're going to look at him as a little bit of a case study of someone who's stuck, I think there's some things going on here of why he's stuck. There's other things happening in the background, which is why Jesus asked him the question. I think there's an advantage that that guy has to staying right there next to that water and not ever getting into it. And he may not be aware of it. I, he, I'm sure he's aware of what it costs him in life. But I think there's some payoffs. And I think when you are stuck, if you do this, what we're about to do here, I think this will be very helpful to you. If you look at, not pros and cons, but look at payoffs and prices. What does it cost you to, what, how does it benefit you to stay stuck? And what does it cost you while you are stuck? So look at, let me look at the payoffs for a second for this guy. What are the payoffs? If we were to just generate a list, what would be the payoffs of him staying there, not ever getting in that water? Let's look, put them up here on the screen. Look at number one. He has a consistent group of friends, Right? It's the people he hangs out with there by the pool every day. That's, that's cool. He doesn't have to worry about getting into breaking into social circles or whatever. He's got that consistency. So that, that benefits him in some way. Number two, he doesn't have to work. Well, he can't. He's crippled, right? He can't go to work. He can't keep jobs. He can't dig ditches. He can't do any of that kind of stuff that you would do in the ancient world. He can't do any of that stuff. So he's in a pretty good spot. That, that, that benefits him in a sense to be there. Number three. He doesn't have to pay bills because who would expect him to? He can't get income. He doesn't have functioning legs and all that kind of stuff, of course. So, so he doesn't have to do all of those things that people have to do in order to pay bills. That, that, that's a payoff to him. Number four, uh, he gets sympathy. Immediately when he meets someone, they feel like, oh, man, you got this thing going on. He doesn't have to navigate complicated social dynamics of let me get you to like me. He just has to, hey, look, what happened? And people are like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. And so he gets sympathy from people right away. And there's sometimes we get very addicted to that. That feels pretty good. Number five, he doesn't have to make big decisions. What does he have to do in life? He doesn't have to worry about, you know, are we going to move my family here and what are we going to do and should I take that job or anything? He just, it's pretty simple. You show up, you sit by the pool, you go home, which to us sounds like a vacation. Uh, it wasn't if you're doing it every single day, right? He's got to sit there and so he doesn't have to make big decisions. Number six, he has justification for life, Right? For, for lots of reasons, things don't work out the way we want. And, and all of us can sit there and be like, man, life's crappy and this didn't happen and I wish things had been differently. And, and sometimes 
things are crappy because of things we did. We're like, oh, I burned it down back there or I blew this relationship or whatever. For this guy, he's like, things are bad and it's not my fault and I just get to, I, have, I am justified feeling bad. I'm justified if I'm short with anyone. I have all sorts of justification because I'm in this bad situation. So these are all payoffs for him to stay by that pool and not be healed. But it also costs him something to be in that spot as well, right? The prices that he pays. Number one, Prices of adventure. He doesn't get a sense of adventure. He's missing out on all the things that you could do in the world and all the great things that could happen. He doesn't have that. He's home and he's there by that pool. So he loses out on adventure. Number two, prices meaningful work. Some work is toil, but not all work is toil. And he could actually have a job that he really loves, but he doesn't get to do that because he spends his life sitting there by that pool. Number three, Mobility, that's the obvious one. He doesn't get to run and jump and play with all the other kids and, and, and experience sports and all the things that you might, might do. He doesn't get to, there's probably parts of Jerusalem he's never even seen because he'd have to have someone carry him there. Number four, it's costing him friendships. Yeah, he's maybe friends with the people who are sitting there by the pool, but there's probably other people around town that he could connect with that he's not going to be able to do because he spends all of his time there. And so he's missing out on friendships correlated to that. Number five, intimacy. He's missing out on intimacy. He's missing out on, uh, on a, a soul-mingling connection with people to really get to know some people well. Maybe he's getting to know some of the people by the pool, but maybe there's some other people that he would connect with even more, and he's missing out on that. And so there are things that cost him to be there, and there are ways that it actually benefits him to stay there. And this is the perfect formula for being stuck in no matter what area of life we're talking about. The perfect formula is for being stuck is uh, I, I don't like my situation, but I'm not really acknowledging all the reasons why being in my situation is actually good for me. And those things are actually keeping me there. It's, it's the kind of situation where you have your, your foot on the gas and your foot on the brake at, at the same time. Now, I know this is talking about a guy with a physical handicap, right? And so, but let's take it out of that context for a second. Because he, he does have a hard situation, and, and maybe some of you have dealt with that too, and, and it's tough, and, and, I, and, I'm not, and I'm, I don't want to take anything away from that. Uh, but I think this question of do you want to be healed, or really, what do you want, I think that a question applies anywhere. And if Jesus walked into this room today and spoke to you, what would he say? If he walked right down here and just like got face to face with you, what would he say? Chances are he'd ask you a question because that's what he did. And, and would he say to you, do you want to be healed? He might if you're dealing with something where you need a healing. But my guess is he would ask you some version of engaging your heart, some sort of desire question, some question about what you want. Um, and it may not sound like, what do you want? He might say something like, hey, hey, I know you've been praying about this. So I've, I've heard your prayers. Do you really want the responsibility that comes along with a promotion? Or are you actually more comfortable staying in your current level of pay and responsibilities? Um, hey, are you ready for the sacrifice of being in community and, and opening yourself up to love and being know, knowing people and being known? Or would you rather stay you know, away from people and, 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 and you've gotten pretty used to the self-pity of being alone? Hey, do you really want to forgive that person to move on? Because I know we talk about forgiveness. Maybe Jesus would say, do you really want to forgive that person to move on? Or are you happy or holding on to your bitterness about that person and using it as a, as a way to distance yourself? Right? Hey, are you willing to change your lifestyle and your habits that you're in? Or are you too comfortable in those to, to really make any significant changes? 
Underneath all of those questions is this question, what do you want? And this is one of the things I love about Jesus is that he, he really does engage the will. And this, is, this is, I think, makes Christianity different from some of the other religions in the world. You know, if, if Jesus was a Buddhist, he would not walk up to this man and say, what do you want? He'd walk up to the man and say, you want too much. That's your problem. If you would just desire less, if you could get rid of all desire, then you'll be fine. But it's like, no, God wired us up this way. You want things. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, but they're all in you. So why pretend they're not there? Let's engage those things and use that as a starting point for change. See, a lot of times we don't change because the stuff that we say we want to change to, we don't really want them. We want to want them, which is not quite the same, right? Like, oh, I, we, we, we kind of go, oh, I should want that. So we have to get underneath this stuff and, and look at the payoffs and prices. This has been huge for me over the last couple of years. I had a guy who taught me a lot of this stuff and, and coached me for, for a few years. And uh, I started seeing it all over the place, man. In the church, we tell people, and I'm a pastor, so I do this. And people come to me and they're like, hey, I got this problem. And I'm like, you know what you could do? You could read the Bible and you could pray. And if you read the Bible and pray more, you'll be better. And, and that's what we say, read the Bible and pray, read the Bible and pray. And that's, that's fine. And I, and I agree with that. I think we should read the scripture. I think we should pray. But the reality is if we just do those things on top of really bad thinking, we're not going to get very good results. We're not going to change because we haven't addressed what's actually going on here and here first before we just say read the Bible and pray over that. And so this has been huge for me to look at, hey, areas that I'm stuck, why? What, what are my payoffs? What are, what are the prices? Um, and, and ask myself, hey, do I really want to change? So look at the way this ends, verse, verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up and take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Man, this is, this is cool. And I don't want us to miss this. Jesus heals the guy. He doesn't heal everybody in, in the whole place. I don't know why. He, but he did heal that guy. And I don't want you to miss that because if you're dealing with something right now and you're struggling, God can heal you. I wish I had the, I wish I had the power to miraculously heal like they do where they just lay hands on someone and they're just, boom, they're fixed. Um, but just because I can't do that with my hands doesn't mean I don't pray for it to happen with people that I know and love. And I'm sure that happens here. People pray over you and say, man, you're dealing with something. People will be praying for you here at this church and they're praying for your healing. God does not miraculously heal everyone, but he can do it. And I really believe that. And I don't want us to miss that, that Jesus has this kind of power and can still do that in our lives. And it's pretty profound. So let me leave you with this. I want to give you... Um, Homework, and if you are the kind of person that writes something down from a sermon, this is it, okay? This is what you need to write down. I'm going to give you a couple questions, and, and I hope these questions wreck your week. <laughs> and I, and I, mean that, I mean that in the best way possible. Um, but these are questions that have, that have hung with me over the years, and, and I keep coming back to them um, as, as they relate to this, to this encounter. Number one, where are you stuck? So you could probably think of something right now. Oh, I'm stuck with my fitness goals or I'm stuck in my reading plan or I'm stuck at work or I'm stuck in this relationship. You probably have some things, but there are probably other areas of your life that you are stuck in also that you're not really acknowledging right now or you're not really noticing. My guess is if you ask people who know you, who are close to you, they know where you're stuck because you talk about it all the time, right? Anything that you're persistent or like consistent complaints about, 
that's probably an area where you're stuck. Let me give you a freebie. Here's, where, here's an area you're stuck. You're too stressed out and you're too busy. Everyone. Uh, I, I haven't even met you, and I know this. Uh, cause, and, that, and, and those words come out of your mouth pretty often. Oh, I'm just so busy. Oh, I'm just so stressed out. That might be a clue. And, if, and, and it's one thing to have a season. Oh, I was busy for a week. But if this is going on for months and years... You may be stuck there, and there may be payoffs for you being busy and stressed out. That may actually serve you pretty well. And so you have to analyze this thing and get in there. So question number one, where are you stuck? Question number two, what do you want? Really. You might as well put really after that. What do you want really? Not what do you want to want, what do you wish you wanted, what do you ought to do, what do you think you ought to do? What do you actually want? Do you want something different than than what you have. We don't, because here's what I know about you, uh, because it's just true of our humanity. You're not going to do what you should do. You're going to do what you want to do. All of you do what you want to do. You don't do what you should do. The the should and the ought to, that only lasts for a little bit of time. But to to talk about what you actually want to do, um, that's the reality. You're going to do what you want. Now, you're going to argue that. You're going to go, Chris, I don't want to go to work tomorrow, but I'm going to because I should. But here's the reality. If we drill down into that, you're going to go to work tomorrow not because you should. You're going to go to work tomorrow because you want to. Even if you don't even like your job, what you want is to get paid and to buy groceries and to pay the mortgage. You want that more than you don't want to go to work tomorrow. So you'll go. So even down at your core, there's a want. And so you have to address this if you're going to change and look at what you actually want. And then the final question, and this question, honestly, this question uh, blew me away when I first heard it uh, and kind of and messed with me over the years. It, it's this, number three, what are you pretending not to know? What are you pretending not to know? One of the reasons we don't change is we pretend not to know things about ourselves. And, and, and that's good to keep the illusion going. That's fine, I guess, but you won't change that way. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was... Uh, in high school, I grew up in Florida, and I was with the choir at, uh, at, in, the, in the school, the school chorus or whatever, and we got the opportunity to sing at Disney World. So we go over to Disney, and we were singing at Epcot. And we go over to Epcot, and we're going to sing and you know, do our choir thing or whatever. Well, before we went out to sing, that we went backstage. And so we got to go to the part of the park that no one goes to unless you're backstage, and you kind of see the behind the scenes of Disney, which, you know, you think that would be really cool, but it's not. And here's why it's not cool. Because when you're backstage and you're rehearsing, and you're thinking, oh, we're going to go out there and perform whatever. When you're backstage, Mickey Mouse walks by. And then he takes off his head. <laughs> and here's what you discover. It's just a dude in a Mickey Mouse costume. And, and, and you know, sorry to ruin this for you. They're all, all of them. Buzz, Buzz Lightyear, just a dude. Minnie Mouse, also a dude. Uh, <laughs> when she takes off. And you're like, man, I don't it's weird, right? And, and, and for a high school kid, this is traumatic because here's the thing. When I get one, when you leave there and you go back out into the park, the only way the magic works is if you pretend not to know that that's actually just a dude in a costume. The only way the magic works is I got to pretend I don't know this and we're just going to be like, oh, it's Buzz Lightyear. This is so awesome. We're just going to go meet. But look, guys, it's Buzz Lightyear. Like you have to pretend big time to keep the magic going. And a lot of us, we live that way. We just sort of pretend because we think it'll keep the magic going. And we pretend not to know what's, what's really going on. And, and I've seen this all over the place. You see it with uh, 
you know, people who are like chronically late to your meetings at work. You know, they, they come in late and what do they say? Oh, tra- I bet they say traffic. That's a thing here, right? They say, oh, tra- yeah, traffic and whatever. And like they're holding a Starbucks cup, you know? And you're like, uh, hang on. <laughs> I know you're saying traffic, but what are you not know? What are you pretending not to know? Because I, it sure looks like, although you are late and often late, it sure looks like you valued what you wanted was Starbucks more than you wanted to be on time for this meeting. I understand. Okay, let's just call it like it is. Try that in your meetings this week with someone who's chronically late. Say that. Say, hey, do y'all see what's going on here? <laughs> She's late again with a Starbucks cup. Weird. Um, yeah. We pretend not to know. Same thing with budget. People run out of money. They, 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 they budget, they run out of money, and, and they pretend they don't know where their money went. Ah, oh, I have no idea. I just, oh, man, every month. I just, and I'm like, come on. Money's like the easiest thing to track, right? There's spreadsheets. There's like the bank will do this for you. There's mint.com. There's like a bil- million things you can do. It, money's easy. It, it comes to you, and then you send it somewhere. You should be able to track where that goes, right? Like, but people act like, oh, I don't know. Casinos. Here's an easy one, right? Not... Let's not gambling addiction, but let's just say people who go blow 50 bucks at the casino, you go, oh, I'm going to spend 50 bucks at the casino, just fun night out, blow it, whatever. But people who go back to it over and over, the only way you can continue to go to a casino over and over is if you pretend not to know math, <laughs> right? Which is not hard for some of us. We're like, no, legitimately, I don't know math. <laughs> but, but you have to pretend not to know what's going on there because beautiful casinos are not built on your winnings. They are built on taking your money and then they build beautiful casinos and pay people and stuff, right? So you have to pretend not to know that when you go into a casino, it is unlike the Hunger Games. The odds are never in your favor when you, when you play something at the casino and you have to know that when you go in. But, but the only way to do it and to go have fun is to pretend you don't know. And we just do this kind of thing all the time. And the reason we don't change, the reason we don't grow, is we hide things from our souls. We pretend not to know what's really going on. And that's deadly to us. Eric Hoffer uh, said this, the weakness of a soul is proportionate to the number of truths that must be kept from it. The weakness of a soul is proportionate to the number of truths that must be kept from it. We hide things from our own souls. We don't engage our own hearts. We don't get honest about really where we are or where we want to go or why, and then we wonder why we feel stuck. So ask yourself these questions over and over this week and beyond. Where am I stuck? What do I really want? And what am I pretending not to know? How am I fooling myself? I truly believe if you can do those things, you'll be far down the road to getting unstuck and to changing and growing like you want to and like God is calling you to. Let's pray.